So, so anyway, we're, we want to talk about wisdom tonight, and I, I want to look at, really, I'm just going gonna, gonna to springboard off of one or two verses uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where it says in verse 12, uh, I'm going to read 12 through 14. Not I'm really going to address part of what's written here, but kind of use it as a springboard and kind of look a little bit at the backstory, which we barely got into last week. Okay, so in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. Notice he says he, he set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom uh, concerning all that is done under heaven. And this burdensome task God has given to the son of man, or sons, plural, of man, by which they may be exercised. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. So, uh, Clay's already shaking his head, and we're only a few minutes into this. So, what, what, what's going on there, Clay, or, or do you want to say? Discouraging. Is it truthful? A few of you are nodding your head yes. What's that, Clay? I'm sorry, I stepped on you. What? If it's in the Bible, it's true. Okay. Don't think that everything under the sun is meaningless. And and so here's the thing, and I wasn't planning on going here, but it's your fault, Clay. But... uh, but there are things that are written in the Bible that we have to discern as to whether they completely apply to us or not. Now, they are inspired. Um, Paul tells that to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. Uh, but do all these things apply to us in all situations? Brian says, yes, I would disagree, but, you know, that's all right. Um, or you could take an approach, which I'm sure you would, because you took us to the, two weeks ago, you took us to the back of the book, is that we can apply, yes, this is true, but there are also other things that are true, right? Like the back of the book. Come on, Brian. Okay. Right. There's always exceptions, yes. And I think that's important to, to, to remember, that there are always exceptions. And, and two things to remember about exceptions. Sometimes they apply to you. Never do they always apply to you, okay? And if, if you don't get those two right, then you're in a world of hurt. But, but Larry, go ahead. The preacher is speaking about his experience. See, okay, so the backstory on this is the preacher. Okay, there's my segue. Um, 
the backstory on this, I sat and I read, and it didn't take long. I read 1 Kings chapter 1 through 12. Just sat down and read the whole thing through one sitting. And, and, and just started um, getting, getting a, a feel and of the life of Solomon. I, I made some observations. I'm going to miss some. Um, I know I'm going to miss some. But nonetheless, when you read 1 Kings, he does, for the most part, he does okay. Until right around 1 Kings chapter 11, when he gets involved in in, uh, foreign women who turn his heart away from the Lord. And, And this really was addressed in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'm going to skim it for you. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it. Let me back up. What's the setting of the book of Deuteronomy? They are on the east side of the Jordan. They are about to go into the promised land. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses. It's one of the five books of, of Moses or known as Torah, the teaching. So they're getting ready to go into the land. And, of course, Moses did not lead them into the land. Joshua did. And so he's telling them, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and you dwell in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay? Uh, but the king, he, it says, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he, he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Uh, this begins, um, so, that's it. Um, I read another line. I should have skipped the line. Okay, so it doesn't multiply gold or silver for himself either. So Solomon, according to Deuteronomy 17, basically failed because he violated all three of those things, including this idea of going back to Egypt to multiply horses. But it, it tells us um, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3 uh, that he... First things, uh, First Kings chapter three verse one. It says, "Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh's king of Egypt, and he married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David, until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, which took twenty years to do both of the, those buildings." All right. So he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. So in a sense, it's, it, it was a treaty. It was a. It was a probably a non-aggression pact. And if somebody picks on you, you're going to help us, and vice versa. Um, and, and that, that's really the general belief of what motivated Solomon to do that, although we don't really know completely firsthand why Solomon did this. But he marries a foreign wife, for starters. He duplicated his wife. And he duplicated, yeah, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines or the other way around. It's in First Kings. Um, that the king was not supposed to, correct, was not supposed to have um, multiply horses, um, multiply wives, 
nor multiply silver and gold. All right? So, and all in all, if you read what's interesting about this in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, this is where he has that reign of terror, where he's killing all his, his, his rivals, uh, which I, I kind of expressed that last week going, yeah, there's something wrong with that. And, and, but it was a common practice of the day. 1 Kings 1 and 2, he's killing off all his rivals. 1 Kings chapter 3, he, he, he has a treaty with the Pharaoh. Uh, and it's interesting, though, about this, and I found this to be fascinating, and I'm going to speculate. So I'm putting you all on warning, okay? It says, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Verse 3, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. And now the king, verse 4, went to Gibeah to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Imagine how busy that must have been. Now, the best that I can gather from what it says in verse 4 is that those thousand offerings on the altar in Gibeah were offered to the Lord. The interesting thing is that we see in in verse 2, the people are sacrificing in high places. Solomon loves the Lord, walks in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. So um, the interesting uh, thing about that, this verse in in, uh, 1 Kings 3.3 is that word except, and the Hebrew means a limitation or an exception. He did this, but he did something else that was contrary to walking uh, in the statutes of God and loving the Lord. So I interpret, really, verse 3 as this: he was sacrificing and burning incense in the high places. Remember, there is no temple, right? But it was a customary thing that the, it tells us in verse 2, the people did it. But it was a customary thing that they would sacrifice to idols on the high places. If you've read and and know much about Old Testament history. So you have this this mixed, um, you have this um, kind of a mixed allegiance already developing in the heart of Solomon. But what's interesting is that it tells us, even in this narrative, it then, when it talks about Solomon's worship, it then tells us about Solomon had a dream where God appears to him. And he basically says, what would you like? You know, and he, he, he lays it out for him. Um, and, and Solomon asks for what? He asks for wisdom. And in verse 9, it says, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked long life for yourself or asked for riches for yourself or asked for life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you or uh, like 
before you, nor shall any like you arise after. So God says, I'm going to give you a, a, um, a wise and an understanding heart to such a degree that there have never been any like you before and there will never be any like you again. And then he writes, I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 again because I know that Clay likes that. Uh, (laughs) I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom that God had given him concerning all the things done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What a conclusion. Now, again, as I continue on in in, in 1 Kings... He does well till around chapter 11, where he starts to multiply wives. And, and, um, and it says Solomon, no, get this, it says Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonianites, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Almost sounds like Solomon was in love with love. Or maybe in love with lust. Um, he starts out well. He has a little bit of a, really kind of a, a, a mixed expression of worship going on. But it, it, it fascinates me. What was it about Solomon that moved God to say, whatever it is that you want, I will give it to you in a dream? And, and the fact that, that God gave Solomon, this incredible gift of wisdom and understanding. And then look what he does with it. So it was totally grace, is what you're saying. Which it could be. Kind of. David had a heart for God. It's hard to say. Um, that, well, there's some precedent to that because when God tells Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom away for you, but I'm going to do it not to you, but I'm going to do it to your son, but I'm going to give your son at least one tribe. It actually turned out to be two tribes, but I'm going to give your son one tribe. That's the son Rehoboam. I said Jeroboam last week, and then I couldn't remember which one was which, but it was Rehoboam. Um, I lost my train of thought. Let me see if I can find it. Somebody help me out here. Um, Yeah, delaying the inevitable. And we see this, uh, uh, one of the other kings as well. uh, Oh, it's Hezekiah. And he was like, well, at least when God God, uh, prophesied to him that the nation of Judah would fall, he's like, well, at least it's not my lifetime. I would have kicked him. Anyway, but but, uh, 
there is some precedent for that, but, but I don't know that I would go as far as to say God bless Solomon. You got me thinking now, Clay. I don't know that I would go as far as to say God bless Solomon because of David's sake, and yet the scripture does tell us that God blesses Israel because of the fathers, because of a promise he made to the fathers. Yes, yep, yep. To some degree, yes. To some degree, yes. Eventually the kingdom falls anyway. But that's what's so important about the two of the genealogies that are given to us in Matthew and in Luke pertaining to the genealogies of Jesus. Because Jesus is a descendant of David on both sides of his, you know, his family, his mother and his father. Um, but it, it's interesting that he was a man who loved the Lord. He walked in the statues of his father, David. Except. He sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Experiences um, along with his desire for other women. And, and because the spiritual and the sensual really, they're very, very tight parallels. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. And that, I mean, that could very well be the, be the case. But, it, but with, with Solomon, it's possible that the, the spiritual experience and the sensual, physical, sexual experience, those go hand in hand. They were. Right. 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 With the counselor, the secular counselor, it's not uncommon for them to ask when they first meet a new patient, tell me about your sex life. A good Christian counselor might say, tell me about your prayer life. Because they both, are in, they both run very tightly together and they are expressions of our, our desire and our fulfillment of intimacy. Through, through computers and, and cell phones and any kind of social media. Um, let me sum this up, and then I want to move on. Um, and again, I, I want to put this out here for your suggestion. And again, I'm not trying to encourage us to become frozen chosen. But I, over the course of many years, I have met many folks that just, it just seems like their worship experience has to has to be done in a certain way uh, and often it's in a way that in, at least in churches that I have been in exceed the norm you understand what I mean by exceeding the norm they, they're the only ones standing in the room there are people that I was in the back row with an, a lead guitar and I can hear them over my monitor the, those type of things um, Bernard um, 12th century. I'm going to read to you what he says. And it's pertaining to loving God. It's pertaining to worship. It says, Christian, learn from Christ how you ought to love Christ. Learn a love that is tender, wise, 
strong. Three things, tender, wise, strong. Love with tenderness, not passion. Wisdom, not foolishness. Strength, lest you become weary and turn away from the Lord, the love of the Lord. Let your love be strong and constant, neither yielding to fear nor cowering at hard work. Let us love affectionately, discreetly, and intensely. We know that the love of the heart, which is affectionate, is sweet indeed, but liable to be led astray if it lacks the love of the soul. He's calling for a balance. That's what he's saying here. It could very well be that Solomon loved with his heart, affectionately, sweet indeed, but led astray because it lacked the love of the soul. Does that make sense? You know, he, he, was, he, was, he was consumed with passion. And we see this, and you know, we see this in his life with, um, is it chapter eleven? Three hundred, oh, seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. Now, I'm not trying to be crude. Seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. That's almost three women a day, once a year. He was a very, very busy man. I mean, it, I, to me, I just don't even, I don't fathom it. It, it, it. You know, it's like, how, how do you put yourself in that position? Because it almost sounds like an addiction. So no wonder he would write Ecclesiastes at, if he wrote it at the end of his life. No wonder he would say these things. You, he, he's worn out. You know, you know, it's the old AA saying, at first there's, it's fun, then fun and problems, then just problems. You know, and I, he might be writing from the perspective of just problems. So, um, just some things to consider as we look into this, um, this particular book. And because of this, God tore the kingdom from his household. When Rehoboam, and, and interestingly enough, and one more thing, it tells us in chapter 3, he has a treaty with Pharaoh, Egypt. A lot of time goes by from chapter 3 to chapter 11, at least 20 years, if not more. Probably a, a different Pharaoh, but the thing is, is that Egypt also then becomes a, a haven uh, in 1 Kings 11, Egypt becomes a haven for two of Solomon's enemies. One of them is Hadad, the Edomite, and the other one is Jeroboam, who becomes king of the ten tribes. And they found a haven, they found refuge in Egypt, the country that Solomon had made a treaty with. So, this idea of going back to Egypt can bite you and bite you real hard. In a sense, that's without geographically doing doing that, that's exactly what I believe Solomon did. Any thoughts, questions, or 
disputes. About that, Brian, about your personal opinion, is Deuteronomy 17. I didn't include it, so I didn't read it. But it also says that the king is to write a copy of the law. And he is to read it. And what, there's no mention of that in 1 Kings, which makes me wonder. Um, and, and, and so to me, it just fascinates me on two levels, though. God in his foreknowledge, he knows all this is going to happen. Which gave me a third thought, but anyway, I'm on overdrive too, so I'm with you. Okay. God, God in his foreknowledge knew this was going to happen, and yet Solomon is the, he's the wisest we've got. According to the Bible. And he writes, vanity of vanity, all his vanities. And perhaps God knew that he was not going to be a good steward over all this, but perhaps, and, and uh, this is a stretch, all right? This is really a stretch. Maybe this was part of God's plan to where he finally comes to the end of himself at the end of his life and writes Ecclesiastes. It's a possibility. You know, we can't, everything that really that I've talked about thus far, it's not universal, all right? These things do not apply to every person in every circumstance in every way at every time. And I would even throw this out. Sometimes worship expressions are simply cultural. Or they're subcultural. We have subcultures even in this little town. But, again, we want to ha- our worship is only as good as the object of whom we worship. So... Uh, Let's go back to wisdom. So we talked about this, and I wish, I, I almost have, an, I almost need another hour. Tim, what do you think? No, I'm, I'm uh, Cousin Tim. I don't know, you better check with your sidekick. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> It'll be fun to watch. But anyway, um, okay, so we talked about wisdom last week. And remember I asked the question, is there good and bad wisdom or varying degrees of wisdom or shrewdness and I thought there was a verse that, or a passage that came into my mind that I couldn't remember where it was. Do you remember that? Well, I still could. I know, you weren't here. I still can't find it. No, I'm kidding. Luke 16. And I think what Jesus is saying here is only part of the point that he's trying to make in this chapter. All right? So be aware of that. There was a certain rich man, one, sorry, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about? You give an account of your stewardship, for you no longer can, uh, you can no longer be steward." Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? My master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I resolved what to do, and that when I am put out of the stewardship, 
they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, how much do you owe me, or how much do you owe my master? And he said, I owe him 100 measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, 100 measures a week, and he said, uh, of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward. This is a, this is a difficult one to, to wrestle with. The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. We really could go on and probably should go on to get the full impact of this, this little parable. But, but it's an interesting observation that Jesus says that, um, that the sons of this world, using his story as an example, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. This word shrewd is interesting. It's the word uh, phronomos. It can also be translated and is in some passages in the New Testament translated wise. So he's talking about wisdom here. And he's essentially saying that the sons of this generation are, are, are wiser in their generation than the sons of light. Um, but it's not a godly wisdom. It's important to understand that. So there are, there are, there are varying degrees of wisdom. Romans 11. Remember we were in Romans? Romans 11, 25. Romans 12, 16, uh, it says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Essentially, that's what it says in both of those verses. Don't be wise in your own estimation or don't rely on your own wisdom. What does that mean? Seek godly counsel. What does that mean? And I want to say, and you will say, seek godly counsel. In other words, you're not the end, right? You're not the final authority. That's what you essentially said. You seek God the counsel. All right? Um, and yes, but you've got to make sure that counsel is godly. Was Solomon godly? He was for 10 chapters, essentially. Although there are you know, some, some things, again, that don't really resemble the character of Christ, but still. Um, first, I think it's 1 Corinthians. I, I did a typo here. It, might, it has to be 1 Corinthians because there is no such thing as 1 Colossians. Okay, uh, sorry. All right, I'm back. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you seems to be wise in this age, see, that's referring back to what Jesus talked about, the sons, uh, 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 the sons um, of this world more shrewd in their generation, right? If anyone seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What does that mean? Want me to read it again? If any... One among you 
seems to be wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. I think that speaks volumes to us if we allow it. To be wise in this age. What does that mean? This era. This Greek word is aeon. Which refers to a, a really a segment of time. Jesus referred to two ages in the Bible. The age, the present age and the age to come. The present age is the worldly age. The present age ref, is reflected by worldly wisdom. The age to come it will be reflected by, and we get glimmers of that, even now, the age to come is expressed by godly wisdom. So let him become a fool that he may become wise. James chapter 3, verse 15. It talks about, well, I'm going to back up a verse or two, and so I'll have to turn there. James chapter 3. Depending on the Bible that I use, some of those books toward the back part of the New Testament are hard for me to find sometimes. Okay, there we go. Just the way they're laid out. Um, James 3, 15, but I'm going to back up to 13. How's that? All right. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's a good question, isn't it? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Meekness of wisdom. Do we see any of that at all today among those who claim to be wise? The wisdom of this age? Your mileage may vary. I'll let you answer that question on your own. Verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Self-seeking could also be in my margin. I'm reading out of the New King James. It could be read selfish ambition. As the NIV said, I saw that head nod. Selfish ambition? Selfish ambition or self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth. So if you're boasting and lying against the truth, what are you walking in? What's, what's the opposite of the truth? It's a lie. This wisdom... Notice James calls that wisdom, the wisdom that boasts and, uh, uh, boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. 
So there is a wisdom that is not wisdom from above. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Uh, it says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, so there's a distinction, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this wisdom from above is really uh, has markings and characteristics that are incredibly contrary to the wisdom of this age. And that's why Paul can say to the Corinthians, uh, if anyone among you seems wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Because how, uh, how much respected outside of the church, or maybe even in the church, but I don't want to go there tonight. I've already bashed the church enough tonight, for one, at least for one evening, right? How much is purity, peaceableness, gentleness, a willing to yield, which you're starting to hear the fruit of the Spirit in this, in Galatians 5? Full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. How much... Without hypocrisy even. How much is that is, is even respected today? A lot to contend with here, isn't there? A lot to think through. So, there are varying degrees of wisdom or shrewdness. There is wisdom from below. There is wisdom from above. And I have, uh, I'm not going to read them all to you. Um, this is why I think it's good. I'm finding myself reading a lot. I'm finding myself reading a lot out of the Proverbs as I'm kind of, although I'm not bringing a lot of those forward on a Wednesday night. That's why, let me encourage you to keep reading the Proverbs while we're doing this. And today is the 13th. If you haven't done it already, you can read the 13th Proverb. Tomorrow, read the 14th Proverb. Uh, and, and because I think the Proverbs really help us understand and inform uh, Solomon because at least in my opinion, it's written by the same person. Proverbs probably written first. Um, Proverbs 26, 12 is interesting. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? What does it mean to be wise? Uh, okay, don't, don't, we don't want to, we don't want to wear this one tonight. How's that? But what does it mean when you observe someone who is wise in their own eyes? So we'll put it on somebody else. It's easier that way, huh? What does that mean? Pride? Self-centered? Arrogant? Let's back off the negativeness just a bit. Okay, because you're right. I agree with you all. But let me back. How about confident? 
Now, is it wrong to be confident? No. How do we know that we're right? Now's the time to break out. Now's the time to break out the pig. But uh, it, it, he'll explain later. But uh, you know, yeah. And so, in other words, you went the wrong way. And and so, sometimes there's incredible value in going the wrong way. If you are able to learn from that, it's incredible value in it. True, and I'm, I'm thinking as you're saying this, we're called to step out on faith always. And because if we never step out on faith, we will never do anything. So we have to have the confidence that God has led. We have to have the confidence that God has spoke. We have to have the confidence that we have heard. We have to have the confidence that I have, although I have no idea how this is going to work out, that God is leading me into this. And, and what's, what's interesting about what you said, uh, Cindy, is, is that the end, right? You're, you're talking about, you, you know at the end, what if the end is years and years and years down the road? You never really know. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't think it's nearly as black and white as we like to try to use black ink and write it on white paper. You know, I there there is it's yeah, it's it's hard. Um because to me as I look at the Bible, there are there are essentials of the faith. There are essentials of the faith that are non-negotiable in my mind. But then there is other points of view regarding the faith that are non-essentials that, that um, I, have to, I have to give liberty towards. Some of those things are a whole lot easier to do than others. Right, Brian? I saw you smile back there. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, and, and so... But things are not always as black and white. That's why it's, it's, I've already gotten in trouble once tonight. I might as well do it again. That's why at times I, 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 I it, 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 you know, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. And then when people take some of the things that I say and they, they interpret it in a very black and white manner, I'm just like, oh, I think I either didn't explain it right or, you know what I mean? And so, um, uh, I, I think the reality is Romans 12. I didn't read it to you before. I do have it in front of me. Thank God. Um, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. 
So this idea of associating with the humble, this idea of walking in, if you, if you associate with the humble, you're either going to become humble yourself or you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Right? I'm going to go a minute or two over, but I'm almost done. All right? Okay. So how do we walk in wisdom? And I wish I had much more time to develop this. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking a slice out of this passage because I think it goes, it's much broader. This passage in 2 Corinthians 10 is much broader than, than I'm, I'm, I'm stressing on. But it says, we destroy arguments of every lofty, lofty, prideful, possibly, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the argument of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's ESV, I believe. Yeah, I pulled that out of the ESV. Um, so we take every thought captive to obey Christ because not everything that you and I think about in a given moment of the day is wise. And to take every thought captive to the obedience, New King James says, of Christ. And to put those at the feet of the Lord and, and really... Um, to seek his guidance, to seek his wisdom, and to seek his instruction because Romans, excuse me, Proverbs 9 says what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's right around verse 10, Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. I'm going to read it because it, it's, I'll find it. We may be, no, I, won't, I won't be here long. Um, because the second part of the verse I want to I want to I want to bring to your attention as well. Nine ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Which is interesting because um, you don't really know till the end, but this is how you can start, right? By fearing God. I may not know what I'm doing at all, but I believe God is leading me into this and I'm going to fear him, respect him, honor him, uh, worship him, uh, be submitted to him as I'm going through this process, right? And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's the second part of the verse that I, I didn't want to leave out. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, it really goes in, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew six thirty three. Um, and so it's this, this calling that we have. There's another verse that just went in and out of my head really fast uh, regarding that, that, that we focus on our life in Christ, fearing the Lord, beginning of wisdom, not the end, the beginning, the starting point. So if you want to be wise, then you fear the Lord. And then, and then seek the knowledge of him, which is understanding. 